All right, so last week, just uh, to touch on that a little bit, um, part one that we looked at, if you guys remember, it, it may have been new to some of you to look at apologetics this way. Um, you know, Christianity makes sense of the scope of the whole. And instead of, instead of offering proofs, you know, for um, truth or proofs for God, Instead of, I think I said it this, this way to you guys last week, a lot of arguments in the past have used logic or the legal presentation, right? So last week we looked at consciousness, human consciousness. Uh, we looked at beauty. And I don't think we got to suffering, is that right? So these, these are just two other areas. So we looked at consciousness and beauty, two other areas. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these two, but I think it is useful to uh, just mention it. Uh, the area of suffering, and again, you're kind of doing the same thing. What's the materialist say about suffering? Uh, and I have this quote in here by Richard Dawkins. And there, Richard Dawkins, if you guys don't know, zoologist uh, from the UK, very outspoken atheist. Most, most people that are not believers and are atheists are not as outspoken as he is. Like He's kind of the extreme. Um, he's written a lot of books. He's written books at the children's level, teen level. And he writes just kind of, you know, the mass media, like, you know, books that you pick up at Barnes & Noble. Um, in many ways, uh, he, he's an evangelist for atheism. Uh, I've had teenagers in my classes that have been exposed to him in various ways. Um, and, and, he's, and he's dangerous, you know, in, in many ways. But one of the statements that he makes here that I think is, is, I think proves our point in some ways or makes our case here for what we're trying to talk about. He says, under the suffering heading, uh, the universe we observe has precisely the properties that we should expect if there is, at the bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Uh, you know, for, for the materialist, what is suffering? It has no meaning. It has no purpose. Um, you could take kind of a Nietzschean idea, Frederick Nietzsche, which is, and, and actually, if you guys are familiar with pop culture at all, Kelly Clarkson. Uh, who I think won American Idol a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, ironically, Kanye West, both have songs that talk about if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger, right? Yeah. Um, and that, that's like kind of a Nietzschean idea. So how do you approach suffering? Well, it's just this means to personally grow stronger. You're, you're overcoming. That's very different than a biblical view of suffering. Now, in a biblical view of suffering, James and Romans, you know, think of the passages in James and Romans, uh, suffering is is for us to grow, right? To grow in perseverance, to grow in character. Um, but it's God using the suffering in our lives. And it's not about, it's not about personal defiance, right? Or anything like that, which Nietzsche, Nietzsche kind of pr presents that view. Uh, so the materialist, there's not really any reason for suffering. The pantheist, suffering's just part of this world. It's just, that's, remember pantheism is just everything is God. Um, and there's no, real, there's no real way to say that it's wrong. I, I don't know that I mentioned last week. There's a, a uh, I think I mentioned it briefly, Deepak Chopra, uh, who, very, very popular pantheist, uh, has been made popular uh, through some of his um, books that are, you know, kind of, you know, on the top, top selling lists. A lot of things on uh, self-help, right, that kind of, you know, mentality. But from a New Age movement, and Deepak Chopra over and over says this idea that suffering is just a matter of your own thinking. You need to change your perspective. 
you need to change your you know your mindset and it won't be suffering anymore didn't he the guy set up the computer in India and then the kids just interacted with it and learned I don't know. Deepak Chopra is like kind of a, a, a new age guru. I don't know yeah. if he's into that. It may be. It so. certainly may be. Um, so another example of somebody who, you know, approaching suffering, but again, it's, it's kind of meaningless. It's kind of pointless. Um, sufferings from wrong thinking. It could be punishment from past wrongs even. Uh, you think of um, India and just the different class levels in India. You know, one of the things that it won't ever change in India's class levels won't ever change because it's embedded in their worldview, right? Like they don't, there's no reason to alleviate the suffering at the bottom level or there's not a real motivation to alleviate the suffering at the bottom level because it's, it's karma, right? It's, it's what's deserved for that bottom level. Even a couple years ago, uh, it wasn't World Vision, but a group like World Vision was actually removed from they weren't allowed to come back to minister in India, even though they were pumping millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars, into helping the most poor in India. The worldview of the suffering didn't motivate them to alleviate it because it's just part of the way the universe is, right? It's the way the universe kind of repays you. Um, and I think sometimes Christians, unfortunately, think that way, but that's not that's not suffering. That's not how we think about suffering. We we do seek to alleviate suffering. We don't believe suffering should be here. I think I mentioned last week, death is not the way the world should be. It's an imposter, right? Um, it's a stowaway in a fallen world. And when we start to talk about death as, oh, it's just natural. That's just what happens to people. Uh, we've, we've mistakenly adopted another worldview. I, did I share the example of the um, oncologist from CHOP last week? So uh, David's, David Steele, did I share it? Yeah, yeah, yeah with the parents, the different yeah, perspective yeah, yeah, of the parents, yeah. yeah. So you know, that the oncologists recognize that there's this almost stoic approach from non-believing parents because they just think either, either a materialist perspective, it's just the way the world is and I'll just come to terms with it, or from a, uh, from a uh, pantheist perspective, that's just part of the universe, right? Are you guys kind of getting those two ways to approach suffering? The Christian view of suffering is so different. Uh, you know, we, we think of, um, again, I kind of mentioned it already. It's here because of sin, and it's only temporarily here. And over and over and over in the scriptures, there's a reason to believe that it's going to end, right? There's a hope to believe that it's going to end. And then in the midst of it, I think I might have mentioned this last week, you know, th this idea of lament. Um, we actually have somebody to lament to, uh, Many of you guys have, have found comfort in the Psalms. I've found comfort in the Psalms because it gives me somebody to lament to. The materialist has no one to lament to. The pantheist has no one to lament to. Um, the Christian view of hope, right? Very, very different. A Christian view of hope is not just wishful thinking. It's actually something that throughout the New Testament is talked about as secure, right? The hope is actually certain. It's not just, you know, I, I'm an optimist. Um, I'll, I'll end with this one with suffering. Again, there's a lot that you could be read about this, uh, whole works that have been done on this idea. But I'll end with this. Christianity makes much more sense than the alternatives, but, is it, but it doesn't totally solve all of our questions about suffering, right? Like there's, and what I mean by that is this. 
there's not just a nice like Christian stamp we can put on our suffering and it just makes it all go away and we're like, oh, okay, that's fine. Uh, my, my family has gone through a bit of suffering. My parents, um, I think I mentioned, lost uh, a son, my older brother, with cancer. So nine, nine months of cancer, uh, was treated at CHOP, and, and my mom recounts stories of people from her church coming to her very quickly after the death of my brother and telling her things like, you know what, you can find comfort though because God was probably sparing him from future sin. People said that, right? Yeah, future suffering. This, this particular woman said future sin, right? She's sparing him from a life of sin by taking him early, you know, when he's two. That offers no comfort to somebody who has just lost their two-year-old son, right? So in, in some ways, the Christian answer to suffering doesn't just, you know, put an approval stamp on it and make it go all away. But what it does, Christianity is so unique in this, is it gives us Jesus, and, and we actually have a Savior who entered into the fray of suffering, right? And the materialist doesn't have that. The materialist doesn't even acknowledge suffering as a bad thing. Um, they know it to be true in their heart, but they don't have a worldview to say that it's wrong. The pantheist can't really address suffering because everything's God, so it, it's neither right nor wrong, right? It just is. The Christian can actually look at suffering and say that it shouldn't be, and then also get comfort from Christ who actually suffered, right? Uh, really suffered, um, felt, bore our pains, right? Um, was, was uh, a human being that went through the emotions that we go through. Uh, so Christianity offers this radical alternative. And I think intuitively, uh, and maybe just take a second and think about this, intuitively don't the non-believing friends that you have know that there's something about suffering that has to it has to be more than it's just the way the world is like have you met people that they're wrestling with their suffering their own suffering and they realize it can't be that it just means nothing right i mean can can you guys think of examples like that or in your mind you can recognize friends who have been going through suffering and they're they're not just they're not just you know stoically ignoring it. They recognize there's got to be something more to it. And the Christian answer has a lot to say about why they believe that, right? Um, justice, the last one that we'll look at, and then we'll jump into the new notes. Uh, so justice is one of these areas, and I'm just briefly, you know, take maybe five minutes here to talk about this. Justice is one of these, another area where Christianity offers a great reason as to why humans have desired justice for all of human civilization, right? Uh, other worldviews aren't really able to give a robust answer to this. They know it's true, but they aren't really able to explain why do we still have that desire. So the, the statement that I have here, throughout human civilizations, societies have sought to achieve justice in different ways, primarily through legal codes, you know, all the way back to the Code of Hammurabi, the Mosaic Law, the Greek legal system, Roman law, uh, Napoleon's code, modern systems of law. These legal codes have never resulted in a perfect legal system. They've never resulted in a perfect legal system. So why is it that human beings haven't just said, oh, I guess we can't solve the justice problem. Let's give up on it. There's like this insatiable desire for justice, right? The materialist explanation, again, think about what we are. We talked about it last week. As a materialist, what are we? We're just highly evolved molecules, right? Doing what? Those molecules do, given time, chance, and the temperature, right? 
Um, we've come a long way. We've evolved a long way. But why this innate desire for justice? Well, one explanation that some materialists offer is the utilitarian explanation. And maybe you guys are familiar with this. Uh, it's the idea of the greatest good for the greatest number, right? The greatest good for the greatest number. How can we get the greatest good for the greatest number? Uh, there's a professor at Princeton, Peter Singer, current professor there right now, who is a, an, a materialist, and he's a utilitarian ethicist. He's an ethics professor, actually. Uh, so he, he advocates all kinds of really interesting things. Uh, one thing that he advocates, it's kind of interesting, is a um, standardized universal income. So he, he makes this really interesting case that, man, if you standardized income, not just in the United States, but universally and capped it, you could solve global poverty crisis. And he makes a really good case for it. Now, what's interesting is he hasn't taken a step forward to do that himself, right? He's making pretty good income at, at Princeton. But he's made a good case for it. It's, it's interesting. There are, you know, he goes through this book um, on morality, and there are a lot of things that we might even agree with, right? Like, yeah, you're right. We should try to stop poverty. Yeah, you're right. We should try to, you know, do this. He also, just to so you're aware of this, he also believes that you should be able to end the life of a child up to two years of age. He's an ethicist at Princeton. Okay, so he's teaching ethics to some of our brightest elite. What's that? What's the best? For the greatest number of people is to get rid of all the disabled. Well, and We're that's that's exactly that's exactly his case. The no, greatest no, good for the greatest amount of people, right? So he can justify it with his framework because if a two-year-old has some kind of disability that was maybe not seen at birth but can be seen as a two-year-old develops, the greatest good for the greatest amount of people is the end of the life of the two-year-old. Um, infanticide, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. They they would call it infanticide. Yeah, yeah, no different than that. I mean, you can actually, Cicero, I think, you know, um, well, you can see a couple of those guys, but Cicero talks about that. Like, if you notice a disability in a child, you're to abandon them, right? Like, that was, that was very, that's a great point to bring up, Pat. Uh, the Christian difference, right, so Cicero is a little later, but even in first century Rome, child abandonment was very practical, right, in the culture. And, I, and you know, hear what I'm saying, not trying to be casual about it. Uh, child abandonment was very practical means to like just you know the economy and family economy and the Christians were the ones that really started adoption hospitals I mean Rodney Stark he's a professor on Texas has traced this how Christianity offered this completely entirely different way of addressing uh, those with disabilities, those in need, those that are sick. And in the first century, you see this you know, massive uh, contrast between the Roman culture and Christianity. That's a good example of bringing about justice, right, to those right. with disabilities. Yeah, Christians over and over were the ones that were adopting those abandoned children. Yeah, yeah. If you're an organ donor, if you're if you need an organ safe. Yeah, yeah. Just the way they break it down if you're... Obese, yeah. ABC, yeah. You don't become yeah. qualified yeah. for an Right. And that's utilitarian, right? Mm -hmm. So you begin to look at life, uh, and this is a good way to think about it. The materialist that's a utilitarian doesn't really have a basis to value the individual, right? So think of, um, and not necessarily a utilitarian, but think of a guy like Karl Marx, right? Like Marxism. It's It's not the... 
it's not the individual that matters. Bob doesn't matter. It's how Bob fits into the collective that what matters. What difference does that make if we're just a bunch of atoms? That's right. That's my point. That's why I'm. That's yeah. That's exactly why I'm saying that. Right. I mean, um, it's just like their own. They don't follow through. That's right. Logically, logically yeah. wouldn't, you wouldn't have any, any basis for any moral values. That's, that's right? absolutely right. That's absolutely right. saying what's best for the most. What, why, why do you think what's best for the most? Well, and then who determines what's have. best, right? Who determines what's best? Best then only becomes defined by, like, biological life. But right? best implies choices and control. Yeah, yeah. And we're just a bunch of random atoms. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, there's all kinds of breakdowns for it. For it. Where Christianity offers a better ex explanation, and I think this is where you're able to, you know, bring that in. The pantheist explanation of justice, uh, again, if everything's one, I think I mentioned it last week, right? If if everything's one, then what is evil, right? If everything is part of the divine, then why do you want to try to achieve justice, right? And that's the example from India. There's no need to alleviate the most poor because they're actually receiving cosmic justice, right? Uh, it's it's this karmic debt that they're paying off, and yet that country has laws. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So all all kinds of uh, you know, um, all kinds of, of of things that we would say are incongruous, right? And and those are things that you want to look for, and you want to winsomely and respectfully and um, uh, cleverly bring those up with friends that are skeptical and maybe in that camp. You don't want to do it to win the argument. You don't want to do it to be disrespectful. But you want to, uh, the way that I've heard it said before, I think this is a great way to think about it. You want to put a uh, uh, figurative pebble in their shoe, right? So to speak, right? You know what I mean by that? You, when there's a pebble in your shoe, you know it, right? So intellectually, you want to drop a little pebble in their mental shoe, so to speak, where you know they're a materialist or a pantheist, and all of a sudden they're like, "That's a little annoying. I got to deal with that." Right? Um, bring up those inconsistencies, in a, and again, in a kind, winsome, respectful way, uh, that helps them be a little uncomfortable in their position. Right? Uh, the Christian explanation, just quickly here. Christian explanation: Humanity and society are not perfectible in in the system. The system can't perfect itself. Right? So the uh, if the term that I use in class a lot, and I think this is really critical, is the creator-creature distinction, right? Creator-creature. And uh, think of a big, you know, half, half circle here. The creature left to its own, right? The universe left to its own devices can't fix itself from a Christian perspective. There has to be intervention from the creator, right? Or the other way that in theology we talk about it is... Uh, Grace has to restore nature. Nature can't fix itself, right? So we could get together as much as we wanted to and try to make a just society, and it'll never happen, right? That's why uh, novels like Lord of the Flies are really helpful novels. And it's a kid's novel, middle school novel, right, that they read, but if you guys have read it before. Lord of the Flies you know, presents this almost idealistic picture of these boys, you know, they're, they're marooned on an island, Oh, this is wonderful. We can have our own society. We can establish our own laws. We can, we can make society work. And by the end of the book, you are scared to death, right? Because they're like killing each other. And it's this little microcosm, really. It's, and, and literature is great for this reason. There are so many writers, non-believing writers, that 
that kind of show us this reality in story. And it becomes a really compelling case for what we know to be true, right? Uh, so the Christian explanation, human, humanity and society are not perfectible. The, the dream of a perfect social order is dangerous. The Christian believes that the dream of the perfect social order that we bring about is really dangerous. Why? Because we always think we can speed up the process, right? Think of, and um, well, you're bringing it up with uh, the organ donation. Think of just bioethics, right? Uh, and this is just, again, a little off topic, but I think helpful. Bioethics. What's the, what's the appeal of some of the advancements that people are proposing in bioethics? We can solve these problems, right? We can solve these problems of, of physical disability. We can solve these problems of you know, mental handicaps. We can solve these problems. Uh, we're not really solving problems, though, in the process. We're actually eliminating massive groups of people. Right? I'll give you just one example of this. Um, it is, uh, let's see here. Down syndrome. Yeah, Down syndrome. In the country I'm thinking of, you're, you read my mind, that's amazing. Uh, is it Iceland? Had, in 2016, effectively, I mean, it was, you know, not exactly this, but it was effectively 0% of children born in Iceland in 2016 had Down syndrome. And they were you know, publishing this, saying, look at this. Look at what we've achieved for our society. We've, we've brought about this just society. Our children don't have to grow up with Down syndrome. But it's not that they solved Down syndrome. That's not what happened. They legislated the use of, of, of you know, prenatal testing uh, in women. They legislated it, mandated it and then eliminated all the unborn children with Down syndrome. Right, right, right. So this is what I'm saying. When, when you, the Christian believes it's that, dangerous. That's, just, that's Go ahead. happening in Pennsylvania right now. Yeah. The Pennsylvania legislature right. last session tried to pass a law where you could not do that right. with Down syndrome. Right, right. And it didn't get passed yeah. past legislation. They're going to bring it up again. Statistically. Especially uh, to try to get that. Not to be yep. on the ground yep. for a woman to yep. choose to abort just yeah. because they've been fetally diagnosed to have a down. In, in the so. U.S., it's actually uh, seven out of t out of ten are are aborted, um, and so that's that's again a very staggeringly high number. But I want I want to connect it to the justice thing. When we believe that we can speed up justice, right? We do some pretty horrific things. So the Christian believes we can't actually bring about justice. Uh, immediately we we're we need to be guarded against human pride and thinking that we can over and over in the bible we see examples of human pr pride where people believe they can speed up justice but more than that i think this is really interesting in the new testament we see the central figure of the new testament jesus who's failed by the two greatest justice systems of the day right the jewish legal code and the Roman legal code were probably the most sophisticated legal codes, you know, in that time period, in that era. And, and the point that I want us to understand is we have, again, a savior who offers himself as the means of bringing about justice, not a, not a human legal code. Do you see what I'm saying? And this doesn't mean that we don't seek to try to make legal codes just, but our hope is never in legal codes. Our hope is in Jesus. Is that what our founding fathers are basically implying from the beginning? 
you know, there's a quote from Locke. Yeah. I can't yeah, yeah. give it verbatim, but he was basically saying that law is nothing in itself. It's really the heart of the people to make them follow the law right. that makes it work. Right. And that was going to be the shortcoming of our society. Right. That if people didn't follow, if their hearts aren't right, right. then it would fail. Yeah, they... they the. The uh, connection between virtue and liberty, right? Like there's there's a really important connection there. And so the Christian realizes the only way to be really virtuous is that Jesus occupy our hearts, right? And so, um, yeah, the Christian doesn't, uh, we don't give up on, you know, trying to bring about justice for people. We, we want to seek to have just legal codes. But the Christian realizes that true ultimate justice won't occur until Christ returns and establishes it. So that kind of wraps up uh, the first session from last week. The second session, uh, does everybody have one? Rick, do you have one? Pat, did you have one? Okay. You pass that over to Rick. Yeah. yeah. And, and we'll go through, uh, through this pretty quick here. This is a little different approach. So the, the first one was the world, right? How does the world... And looking at the world, make a good case that Christianity, man, with all the complexities that everyone faces, Christianity, 2019, still does a great job holding its own in, in you know, addressing some of the biggest complexities. This direction with apologetics might be more familiar to some of you. This is focusing on the word and the reliable witness of the historical events. But I need to start with just you know, two statements that uh, I think we need to realize. Uh, Unbelieving friends, uh, our unbelieving you know, neighbors, our unbelieving family members, it's not a matter of uh, intellectual deficiency or, or information problem. Okay? Our friends and our family that are non-believers don't have an information problem. They have, it's, a, it's a heart problem. Okay? And that's going to affect how you think you can use apologetics. And hear me out. What I mean by that is this. Romans 1 is very clear about this. Ro- and you can turn there right now. Uh, Romans 1 uh, lays out uh, a very clear case that human beings know God. They know who he is. They even know truth about God, revealed truth about God. And it's revealed in their own existence. In their own hearts, they know this to be true. I'm in Romans chapter 1. And uh, you can start in verse uh, 19. And it says this, Romans 1, 19. For what, for what can be known about God is plain to them. The them there, he's talking about everyone. Okay, um, it's, it's plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely... His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. We might even call that in theology general revelation, right? In general revelation, of which you and I are part of general revelation, we know certain things about God. So we've seen it in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Verse 21, for although they knew God, and here, here's the heart issue, okay? They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, useless in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God 
for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So th this is what I want us to start with, this kind of understanding. The unbeliever, and this is the second statement, I'll come back to the first. The unbeliever does not have an intellectual problem or an information problem, might even be a better word to use there. It's not a lack of information. Instead, it's a heart problem or a spiritual problem. This means that uh, a lack of information about the reliability, reliability of the Bible is not the unbeliever's problem, right? Like if they might make that their problem. They might say, well, I don't believe in God because I don't believe the Bible is reliable. But their belief of the reliability of the Bible is just a symptom of the heart. We're kind of following that. This is, I think, simple ideas, but it's important for us to get this theology. Uh, the problem is the unbeliever does not want God's authority and will suppress all the ways that God reveals himself unless the Spirit of God intervenes. And so what this means in, in our you know, conversations with our friends and family uh, that are non-believers, we ultimately want to get to the gospel. Uh, that's what we want to get to. We're not just trying to win an argument with them about the reliability of the Bible. Uh, we're not just trying to win an argue, argument with them about how creation happened. We're not just trying to win an argument uh, you know, that Jesus was really a historical figure. What we're getting at is, we really want to get to, is the gospel, because the gospel is what they but need. the gospel is irrelevant if the person believes what we base our belief about the gospel is upon an unreliable document. You, Bible. you are right. You are right. Uh, and and we'll, we'll address that. that. That's actually the stuff that we're going to get into. But my point in saying that they need the gospel is um, let's just you know, use the reliability thing as an example right now. Uh, let's say I'm the non-believer, okay? And, and I don't believe that the New Testament is a reliable document. And I don't believe it's a reliable document because it doesn't fit my requirements, my criteria of what's rational. Um, and you give me a great case as to why it is reliable. And now this is what I say. So this is like, maybe I don't say it out loud, but this is what I'm thinking. Now I say, okay, it fits my criteria of what's rational, so I will now believe it. What's still my authority? Yourself. My intellectual criteria, right? What really needs to happen? God's word needs to invade my heart and his spirit needs to open my heart and my mind to submit to the authority of it where now I cry out, Lord, right? Like my savior. And now I believe the reliability of the Bible. Do you see it now? In our minds, the order sometimes looks like it's, I believe in the reliability, and then I believe that he's Lord. But in, in theological terms, what, what's really happening is the gospel is invading it, right? Now, do we need to be able to show that it's reliable? Yes, and that's what we're going to do over the next minutes. So it might seem like a nitpicky point, but I think theologically it's helpful. The first, the first point that I have there I think helps this case as well. As new creatures... Uh, premise one, as new creatures remade by the Spirit of God, the Christian's belief that the Bible is the inspired and errant word of God isn't just because it is a reliable witness of historical events. Right? That's, that is true. I do believe it's a reliable uh, testimony of historical events. But that's, that's not the primary reason why I believe the Bible as a new creature. The primary reason why I believe the Bible as a new creature is because of what First Peter says, I've been born out of it. Right? Um, 
it says that we've been born out of the imperishable word of God. And, and just a little illustration of that, right? Why do I as a parent have authority over my children? They've, they've been born out of my wife and I. They've come from my wife and I, right? Why does the Bible have authority over the Christian? Because we've been born out of it. Our new life if we're really these new creatures that the Bible says that we are, that new life has been birthed out of the Spirit and the Word, right? And so we see it as such because we've been born out of it. That's what we want for the unbeliever. Do we need to make a case for the reliability of it? Yes, we do. So let's work through this I mean, quickly. Can Go ahead. It's reliable. Mm-hmm. Still choose to not follow. That is exactly right. That is exactly right. This, this sounds a lot to me like the case for Christ. That we struggle yeah. to prove it yeah. wrong. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, got enough evidence to go, whoa. Now I have to do something with it. Exactly. Yeah. And that was his crisis yeah. moment. And he couldn't yeah. accept it immediately. Yeah. And there are a lot of people, Bart Ehrman is a case where, you know, he's a UNC New Testament scholar, studied under Bruce Metzger, went to Moody Bible College, went to Wheaton. When he, get, he went to Princeton and kind of rejected Christianity. He knows the reliability. In fact, he, he teaches the reliability of the New Testament. He teaches it in, at UNC, University of North Carolina, one of, the, one of the brightest New Testament scholars in the world. He doesn't believe in the miraculous parts of the New Testament, but he says the four Gospels are easily, easily some of the uh, four most uh, proven reliable texts that we have to talk about Jesus. Now, he also adds to that and then says, but I think some things have been added, right? But he believes in the reliability of it. Uh, doesn't accept Jesus as Lord, though. He would call himself an ag- agnostic. So what he needs is, is the heart change, that new birth, right? And, and uh, I think the case for Christ, Lee Strobel is a good example, where he received that heart change, right? His posture towards the evidence was changed by the Spirit of God. Uh, so to Greg's point, though, Christianity is not an esoteric religion. It doesn't ask people to just disengage with reality, history, or the physical. It's actually grounded in these things. Uh, so history is meaningful. It's, it's not myth. It's not legend. History is meaningful. And it's important to be able to make a case that uh, the New Testament and all of the Bible, but particularly the New Testament, is a historical, reliable book. So a couple points that we'll make with this, and I think, Greg, this is to your, to your point that you, know, that you were making. Uh, but I want to start with that theological bedrock, bedrock first, right? The theology is we need, we need the gospel to change their heart, right? But we do want to be able to show, it's, it's kind of putting that pebble in their shoe again, right? We do want to make them deal with the reliability of the New Testament. So just a couple points on this. The New Testament accounts of Jesus were written by eyewitnesses in the presence of eyewitnesses. They're written by eyewitnesses in the presence of eyewitnesses. Um, And what I mean by that is, and several times in the New Testament you see this, there were people around that if they desired to do so, could have disproved what was being claimed at the time, right? There were people around that if they desired to do so, could have disproved what was uh, being claimed at the time. So the Gospels, you know, they're written within 30 to 40 years after the events. Uh, Paul's epistles were much earlier. You know, we're talking 50, uh, even earlier than, like 48 uh, AD to 60 AD. Uh, so 50 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. 
uh, little details in the Gospels. Like I gave, I gave you a couple examples, but there's a ton that you guys can probably think of. In Mark 15, 21, Mark says, uh, you know, he's talking about uh, an individual. And he's like, oh, yeah, and that was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Well, that only matters if there's people around that know Alexander and Rufus. You see what I'm saying? Like it's just like these little, you know, kind of details that are peculiar. Uh, in a similar way, Paul tells the Corinthians that Jesus appeared to many, and you guys know this passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. He says they, Jesus appeared to many of whom are still alive. So what could the Corinthian church, you know, have done if they, if they wanted to? And maybe some of them did. We don't know this. Uh, they could have checked, right? Like they could have, they could have said, "Well, I'm going to check to you know see if that's the case." The point here with this, the New Testament accounts of Jesus were written by eyewitnesses in the presence of eyewitnesses. It's not a book that can be hid behind your back and protected, and you can't you can't question, right? Or it wasn't available to be questioned, like the Book of Mormon, right? Like the Book of Mormon, there's no way to even evaluate its claims. It's like one guy. Right, Joseph Smith putting it together can't question it. Can't can't. There's no no one can check the veracity of it. Right, with the New Testament, you can actually you and I cannot in that way. But it's written in a time period where the veracity of it could be disproven. Right, and I think that's an important point to understand. Uh, Paul says when he's in trial uh, to Agrippa in Acts twenty six twenty six. These events of Jesus didn't happen in a corner, right? It didn't happen in some corner of the world. And again, you know, Jerusalem being a crossroads of, of, of the Roman Empire, people knew about these events. Uh, Paul's even appealing to one of the highest, you know, officials at the time, claiming, you're aware of these too, Agrippa, right? Like, you've heard of this stuff. You know what's going on. The manuscript evidence, of which you go into a ton, but just, you know, to point out... Some of the gospel manuscripts that we have, a manuscript, by the way, is a copy, a handwritten copy. Uh, some of them we have are w within, uh, you know, 100 A.D. Uh, you know, some that could be dated maybe into the 90s. They thought that they had a Mark manuscript recently, just two years ago, uh, that was dated into the 90s. Later, they dated a little, uh, uh, I think they dated it like to like 112 A.D. But again, that is like incredibly close to the point of the events actually occurring. It's not like, and I'm going to use a term maybe some of you have heard, it's not like the Gnostic Gospels, where Gnostic Gospels, if you're familiar with that, uh, are you know clearly written uh, as if they are from apostles, but far later dates, right? The Gospel of Thomas being one that people quote, the Gospel of Mary, people quote that. Um, these are books that can pretty much definitively be proved to be second century, third century books that are primarily arising in Egypt, okay, or in, in that surrounding area. Uh, the Gospels are unlike these Gnostic Gospels in that there is manuscript evidence, archaeological manuscript evidence, well within a time that doesn't really allow for myth or legend to, you know, evolve. By the way, the Bible Museum, if you guys get a chance to go to Washington, D.C., I think it's free. Uh, is it not anymore free? Suggested donation. Suggested donation is what it is. Yeah, See, of any amount, of any amount. They don't question it. 
Um, it is. You're right. So it's 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 suggested donation. So donate what you can. Go visit it. It's it's really unbelievable. They get into a lot of the manuscript evidence, which is really neat, and have some of the early manuscripts available. Uh, another point with the New Testament accounts of Jesus, so the Gospels, the early church fathers, many of them, I have one here, but many of them pointed to the four Gospels at a very early date. So as early as 160 AD, they're pointing to those four as being you know, authoritative or Gospels that are reliable, which I think that's important. Again, it shows they were at least written before that point, right? It's not as if they're second, third century documents that couldn't have been written by the people they claim to be. Second point, the New Testament content doesn't seem to be consistent with legend or myth. Uh, and similar to the first one, but just kind of think through this with me here. Uh, the early church leaders think guys like Peter, Thomas, James, John, all the apostles for that matter, they are not presented in the Gospels as heroes, right? Think about how petty and mistaken and foolish they're presented throughout, right? If you were trying to manufacture a, a document that would give you control to manipulate an early religious movement, you would want to present yourself as, you know, important and, and not fallible. And these guys over and over just... They look very much like us, right? Like very fallible people, petty even uh, at times. You know, remember when James and John are arguing about like, well, who's going to sit on your side, right? Like, and Jesus is telling them, listen, you don't want to ask for that, right? They don't even get it. They don't even understand, you know, what's going on. And these are going to be guys who go out and change the world, really, right? Uh, it's just kind of an, a, an amazing point, I think. Uh, again, does it, does it prove that it's God's word? No but it helps us make a case that they're reliable, right? I don't think that there is a way that you can, with another person, prove that this to them, you can't prove to them, the unbeliever, that this is the very authoritative word of God. I know it's the word of God because I've been born out of it, right? But I can't prove that in the way that an unbeliever wants me to prove it. But I can show that it's, it, it's reliable, right? Uh, second, I think this is, again, a really good point with that, with that one. The physical world, over and over in the New Testament, the physical world, creation, is presented as a positive, meaning uh, Jesus isn't coming to separate us from the physical world. He's actually coming to restore it, right? Look what he does. He heals blindness. He heals paralysis. He heals the sick. He casts out demons. Over and over, if you guys are familiar with the Gnostic Gospels, it does not promote that vision. Instead, it promotes a vision of separation from the physical. It's, it's more like what Plato advocated, which Plato advocated this idea that the physical is bad and the spiritual is good. And Jesus is like, no, I'm bringing my kingdom here, right? So it, again, it doesn't look like legend and myth that you normally see. Uh, the third point under there, there's a clear emphasis on caring for the poor and the oppressed in the New Testament. Over and over in the Gospels, you see this. Um, I should say this would, uh, this would conflict with Roman rule of the day. The Romans had no concern for caring for the, the poor or oppressed, which again, it, it, it's helping to make the case that this, these documents weren't being manipulated by just the culture of the day in myth and legend. There's something unique going on here, right? 
Uh, fourth uh, point under there, there's details, again, like the earlier one that I mentioned, there's details that seem very odd if the story is just myth or legend. The example that I gave from Mark 4, Jesus asleep on a cushion in the, you know, the, the bow of the boat, or uh, Peter's 100 yards away, right? Very detailed uh, perspectives on this, not just uh, this generic myth. Uh, our modern fiction, we might say, well, our modern fiction, people write modern fiction. That's like myth, right? And it's very detailed. But uh, the thing you have to understand is ancient fiction or myth was not like that. M modern fiction is very, very different perspective than what ancient myth was like. C.S. Lewis, who not just an apologist, but a literary expert, that was his field, was, was in literature, uh, I'm going to skip his first quote, go down to his second quote. Uh, he says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myth all of my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this, the gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, this is actually a report of what happened, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative, right? So, so Lewis is like, either they anticipated this you know, genre that was going to come years later, or else they were really you know, telling us what they saw, which is more likely, right? Again, you're just kind of offering that as, as a, another case to say, this seems to be credible. This seems to be a credible uh, testimony. I think another point that's important with Lewis is uh, Lewis loved mythology. He loved legend. He loved stories. Uh, Lewis was an atheist from the time he was like 13 until his 20s. He, he had become an atheist, yet he loved stories, loved mythology, Viking mythology, Norse mythology, loved it. Was very familiar with the, all kinds of mythology that would talk about a god dying and so when he read the Gospels, he was like, this is just another one of those, right? Like another God dies. And it was actually through a friendship with Tolkien, if you guys are familiar, Lord, Lord of the Rings, J.R. Tolkien. And through this friendship, Tolkien was telling him, listen, you're right. You know, these myths, they seem similar to the Gospels, but there's something different about the Gospels. They're actually history, right? And, and this God who dies actually really did resurrect. And so instead of the Gospels just being one of the other myths that his heart longed for, the Gospel was actually the myth that was true, right? The true myth. And uh, it, it, it ended up leading him to conversion, to believing in Christianity. Uh, and he says in this quote, Tolkien. The, what's that? Tolkien. Tolkien? Yeah, J.R.R. Yeah, Tolkien. Yeah, yeah, good. Uh, the, the, two the two hemispheres of my mind were in sharpest contrast. On the one side, a many-islanded sea of poetry and myth. On the other, a glib and shallow rationalism. Nearly all that I loved, I believed to be imaginary. Nearly all that I believed to be real, I thought grim and meaningless. But it was the gospel that joined the two, right? It was the God where history and myth came together, and Jesus, the, the true God, broke into human history, right? You have to deal with the resurrection. You have to deal with the person of Jesus. And the Gospels present a really good case that Jesus was a historical figure. 
the resurrection seems to be, uh, again, a, uh, an account that you have to deal with, right? It, if there was an empty tomb and there were eyewitnesses, you've got to start dealing with that, that fact, and you can either just deny it or, or he becomes a really compelling, or you know, that story becomes a really compelling case to believe it. And here's where it goes, the logic. If you believe him, right, if you believe Jesus, if you believe the true, the true myth, then you accept what he believes about the Bible, right? So once you're confronted with the gospel and you accept him for who he is and the reality of your need for him, you accept his view of the Bible as well, right? And that's, that's kind of what Lewis went through. And that's what I finished with here. The resurrection changes everything. The resurrection changes everything, okay? And again, this fits right in with the New Testament reliability. The resurrection was not, it was not a, a uh, expected regular occurrence within Jewish theology. Sometimes people try to make that case and they're like, oh, you know, resurrection was commonplace. It was not. Uh, people were not looking for individual resurrections to occur all the time. When Jesus was on earth and, you know, he performed some resuscitations where those people eventually died again, right? That, that was not a commonplace thing. And the Jews were not ex expecting some one-time occurrence of an individual to resurrect. They were expecting from Daniel a future resurrection of the Jewish people, right? And Daniel's pretty clear on that, Daniel 12, 2 through 3. So Jesus' resurrection wasn't something that was like just Oh, the Jews were expecting it, so it was wish fulfillment, right? Like they, they just saw what they wanted to see. No, this wasn't something that was uh, on their radar, so to speak. It should have been because he had been predicting it for three years, right? Uh, Paul addresses resurrection historically, not just symbolically. And again, remember, Paul writes his letters within 15 years of the event happening. Paul doesn't reference it as symbol or just a spiritual reality. Paul addresses it as a historical reality. 1 Corinthians 15, he actually you know, references it. I tell you of first importance, the gospel of which Christ died, he was buried and resurrected in three days, right? He's not just saying he spiritually died. He's talking about a historical event there. Uh, again, he talks about Jesus appearing. I mentioned that already to over 500 after the resurrection. Uh, the third point there, each gospel accounts uh, or each gospel account records the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection being women. This is a really interesting point. In that culture, Roman and Jewish culture, it's actually in the Jewish law, right? Uh, the testimony of a woman was not accepted, right? Um, it wasn't held in high regard. That Roman culture disdained, uh, almost treated women like lesser human beings. Uh, a couple hundred years earlier, Aristotle argued that women were half formed men so they were like you know not the whole way formed men right i have pretty bizarre views here so it's interesting that the gospel writers would actually record that women were the first ones to see and witness the empty tomb and they're the ones that told the men that you know if you're building a case for credibility you might not want to choose testimony that most people wouldn't believe unless that's what really happened right uh, in one case, uh, we won't look it up right now for the sake of time, Luke 24, uh, the second section of verses, 23 through 24, that's the road to Emmaus. Do you guys remember that story? And the, the, Jesus is with the two visitors, but he's not revealed himself. And you know whether he spiritually kind of closed their eyes or physically somehow 
to not recognize him. And, you know, they're saying, haven't you heard what happened? You know, this Jesus who we thought was the Messiah, you know, he's been killed in Jerusalem. And, you know, we're like not sure what's going on. And, and then they say, and it's, it's glossed over in the NIV and the ESV with a word like amazed. It says, and then a couple of our women told us a story that amazed us. But what's really there is they told us a crazy story. Like that's, that's really what's there, right? Amazed is a nice way of saying it because they didn't believe it. They're like, these women told us a crazy story that the tomb was empty. We don't know what to do with it, right? And then you remember Jesus starting you know, with the Law and the Prophets shows them all that was said concerning himself and their hearts burned within them. This is him, right? So uh, something goes on in their head. Oh my goodness, this crazy story of these women is actually true, right? Uh, but again, it, it, it gives credibility to the story. Uh, that the, was known to them in the breaking of bread. What's that? And he was known to them in the breaking of That's right. Very good. The, uh, the combination of the empty tomb and eyewitnesses is, is also an important combination. Again, the resurrection, you know, the heart of it uh, is, is critical. It's not just that there was an empty tomb in the gospel accounts, and it's not just that there were eyewitnesses, it's the empty tomb and the eyewitnesses. That combination together uh, with the reliability of the New Testament becomes something that you have to deal with, right? You have to deal with. Uh, second to last point there on this page, historically we can at least, and again, I'm not saying that this is what I believe, at least, I'm saying as you're talking to somebody, at least you can conclude that there really was an empty tomb and people really believed they saw the resurrected Jesus. Okay, So whether a person accepts that they really did see the resurrected Jesus is something else, but at least historically, that's what's going on. You guys following me with that? And this sounds, I mean, it is kind of simple, but think about it. If there, if there was a body, there are some theories, you guys have heard this before, probably. Uh, there are some theories that the women in their, in their sadness when they went to visit the garden tomb, Please don't tell us mistakenly that. went to, you know, a wrong tomb, right? That's, there, there's some sort of soul. The problem with that story, like, think about this. This is just kind of a logical problem. The Romans and the Jews know, know, knew where they buried Jesus. So when the Christians started going crazy, like, he's, he's resurrected, the tomb's empty, they would be pretty quick to produce what? The tomb. The tomb with the body. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, so that in that argument, it's often missed. You're like, do you hear what you're saying there? And I've heard this from people before. They're like, well, you know, the women got mixed up as they're going into the garden. They were sad. They went to a tomb that wasn't really a tomb Jesus was born. But there were people that knew which tomb he was born in, and they never produced the body, you know, to show differently. Uh, the other thing that I think is really compelling for people, and again, these aren't necessarily the reasons why I believe in the reliability of the scriptures. I, I believe it because I've been born out of it, right? But I think this is a compelling case. The history of the early church, within a few years of Christianity growing after Pentecost, Paul later quotes it in, in Philippians, there's a hymn to Christ, Philippians 2, 6 through 11. That was an early hymn in the first few, developed most likely in the first few years of Christianity, Right away, what is the church affirming? The reality of the resurrection. Right? Right away. 
And again, if, if there were, you know, half the church was divided, well, you know, there's the skeptical side. We don't really think he resurrected. And, you know, the other half was like, no, we really think he did. There wasn't that debate going right away. There's this unison within the early church that he resurrected. The other thing that happens almost immediately, it does happen immediately. I mean, li- literally right after Pentecost in the first few years, you, you see this. The Jewish Christians immediately end the animal sacrificial system. They don't practice it. They see no need in it theologically. Why? Because they believe in a, in a resurrected Christ. He's accomplished the final sacrifice, right? And again, almost immediately, they began worshiping on Sunday. So I think those become a, a, a historical case that the early Christians really believed in the resurrection. Uh, last two points there. Uh, just because you die for a belief doesn't make the belief true. But eyewitnesses... Uh, that are martyrs for a belief gives you more reason to believe that they believed what they were dying for was true. You see what I'm saying? You don't die for something that you you know to be false, right? Uh, they're, they're dying for something that at least they believed was true, and that becomes another compelling case uh, over and over with the apostles, uh, and you know, even Stephen, for that matter, uh, end up dying for... This, this belief. And then a case study. The resurrection changes everything. Just look at the life of Paul, right? Paul, Paul becomes convincing. You guys have heard maybe of C.S. Lewis, his liar, lunatic lord. The have you guys heard of that before? The trilemma, the great trilemma. He's liar, lunatic, or lord, right? And there's, there's more to it than just that, but you can only accept Jesus for one of those three things. Either he's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he really is who he said he was, right? You can apply a similar model to Paul. Not Lord, though, right? <laughs> Liar, lunatic, or he really was an apostle of Jesus Christ, called by Jesus. Really, really met the resurrected Christ, right? Paul's testimony, his life, is this case study that the resurrection changes everything, right? It becomes this uh, really compelling story that... This is true. This is true. Uh, so those are just some reasons. We, we don't, we're out of time, but any quick questions on any of those things or comments? Oh, I got to go. <laughs> yeah, get out the car, duty. Yeah.